Welcome to the Policy and Planner English Podcast. I'm your host, Helen Laban. And those are two crunches. The first is a Honeycrisp apple. The second is a cheese puff. You might remember the apple references from our first episode. A Honeycrisp is an interesting apple for many reasons. The reason we're after today is because it's a handsome apple that consists almost entirely of texture and the flavor of sweet. Not much else going on there. Here's food writer Rowan Jacobson. The Honeycrisp, which has become the world's most popular apple by far, has a really light flavor. It's really, it's got crunch is, is what it's got. It's like a texture monster and it's very juicy. Just enough sweet and sour to let you know something's going on, but to not get in the way. And you just, you watch people pound Honeycrisps in a way they don't pound other apples. The cheese puff is a food carefully engineered to also maximize textural impact, albeit through a very different development process than a Honeycrisp apple. The cheese puff's defining attributes involve being bright orange with a puffed crispy texture and salty, very salty, with a trace of cheesy flavor powder. Different than, say, Cool Ranch Doritos, which go long on the aromatics to complement their salty crisp. These sound bites are here to remind us of two key points from the beginning of the season. We experience flavor using all our senses, and while there's often nuance in the background, we tend to respond to a few lead characteristics. Texture is a big deal not only because it gives me an excuse to try sound effects. Every year I go to this conference, the Research Chefs Conference. In the last three years, texture has kind of it's become the new, like, new, new thing. In the last, I don't know, Five years, companies have invested in the psychology around texture because they realized that they were missing out on a whole aspect of business. So they started to do extreme amount of uh, investigation and consumer testing. That's Dale Conascenti. His audio connection was a bit choppy. I did my best in the editing, but please forgive any reduced sound quality. My name is Dale Conascenti. I am a research chef, and I work for a company called Rhino Foods in Burlington, Vermont. And we produce inclusions for the frozen industry. Inclusions. Think cookie dough or fudgy brownies in your ice cream. They also sell them in pouches for the refrigerator. I am certified by an organization called the Research Chefs Association. It means that I have experience as a chef and that I've actually worked in the industry as a chef, whether that be a hotel, a restaurant, my own restaurant, or some other food industry background. And also that I have science. I'm certified in science, which means that I understand the science of food. I understand microbiology. I understand equipment. Um, and I understand formulation. And also I have experience in production. And while Dale may be going to research conferences with people who are way into texture, remember that what matters is knowing whether you are way into texture. I went to this, to this conference course about texture, and it was a really eye-opener for me because there are people who are texture people, and there are people who are not texture people. Wait, I'm sorry, there are non-texture people out there? Who are they're, these people? And they're able to like pass on their genetic line? <laughs> <laughs> yes, there are people out there who don't like crunchy things. 
Dale has to be a lot into texture because it is really, really hard to create the right texture for cookie dough inside of ice cream. You want the cookie dough that you're putting into ice cream to have a texture that's enjoyable. Typically, a consumer is eating ice cream at about 10 degrees because a home freezer is anywhere from zero to 10. It's in this ice cream base, and you don't want it to be so hard that when you bite into it, it crumbles. So you want it to have a texture where it's almost like velvety almost in a way when you're eating it. You bite into it and it's forgiving. You could take it out of the ice cream. You could bite it and you would see bite marks on the piece because it has that amount of firmness but softness. So that's the goal. Note how he has articulated a starting goal with a moderate amount of detail. The language of goal setting is a skill and it matters. So back the podcast up one minute if you need to re-listen. In a typical cookie, you would make it home. It'd be flour, butter, or some other kind of fat, chocolate chips, some leavening. Very, very simple. For me to formulate this kind of product, I have to use many other ingredients. And each one of those ingredients has a function. So, you know, I, yes, I use flour and sugar, just like in a regular chocolate chip cookie and, and a fat, you know, the fat could be butter or the fat could be palm or the fat could be coconut. You always need a hard fat because you don't want it to be frozen hard like an ice cube and you don't want it to be mushy because if it was that soft, the ice cream company would never be able to get it into their ice cream because they use a very specific equipment to add inclusions into the flow of ice cream. So I have to use things like soy lecithin that helps the dough come together and stay together. I use not only a hard fat, but I use a, a soft oil fat also. It could be a soy oil, it could be canola oil, safflower oil. And that that helps to make what's called lubricity. So when you deposit it, when you eat it, there's a certain softness to it that's enjoyable. And sometimes it's baking soda in it, depending on the customer. That will react to the acid that's in the dough. You know, it may have molasses in there, so there's a little acid in there. will stimulate the baking soda to start to activate and create some little bubbles that will actually stay in the dough and give it a certain amount of lightness. That's getting in the ballpark for the correct texture. For the sake of brevity, I'm cutting information about scaling up to a commercial application, but I'll link more in the show notes at plainerenglish.org. Now, some companies want ballpark for cookie dough inclusions. Others want to be distinctive. You're looking for a crunch of the sugar crystal because that's a characteristic of cookie dough. And, you know, no company is better at that than Ben & Jerry's. So if you ate a Ben & Jerry's cookie dough ice cream, and you bit into the chocolate chip cookie dough, you're going to get a sound in your ears and from the back of your molars because as you bite into that and chew that, the sugar crystal, there's a fair amount of sugar crystals. They don't really melt because it's a ready-to-eat product. So when you're eating it, you get this crunch, this kind of grindy noise. And it's very unique. You know, not every cookie dough has it. But that product, and the customer is so aware of that. They know that that represents a Ben & Jerry's cookie dough. And then, you know, after you experience that, 
then you're going to experience a firm but soft bite of the chocolate chips. Until now, we've done a bit of pushing nuance aside. Those wine aromas, so complicated. Remember, that was in service to making it easier for us to articulate what we do and don't like in a food. That doesn't mean we aren't experiencing the background nuance, even if we can't quite put a name to the details. If you have a brand preference in a food category, it probably does taste different. Sometimes it's just marketing. But let's not be cynical about our ability to detect subtle taste differences. Here's a classic, the sounds of water pouring. One is hot, one is cold. This may be mostly a test of your earbud quality in the podcast context, but give it a listen. First was hot, second was cold. Most people get this right. They can't say exactly why the two sound different, but they can translate the nuance into a description they're able to easily name, hot or cold. Just like we might translate the nuance of sugar crystals to a brand preference for Ben & Jerry's. So how do we get better at absorbing all these sensations and translating them into understanding our food? Here, we'll add in a second chef to help us. My name is Leah Pryor. I'm the executive chef and manager here at the University of Vermont Medical Center. I am also one of the co-founders of the culinary medicine team and a chef educator. Leah works on a lot of food-related programs at UVM Medical Center. Here, we'll be focused on cooking classes for patients, employees, and the broader community, and also the classes she holds for healthcare practitioners, including medical students. It all falls under the broad category of culinary medicine. How we define culinary medicine is that it's the science of nutrition married with the joy of cooking. It's being able to talk about food in an accessible way at the same time as bringing along this wonderful knowledge of nutrition. A lot of times, at least what I've seen anecdotally while I've been teaching for you know around 10 years, is that a lot of people like the idea of learning how to cook, <laughs> but when they're actually brought to the, to, you know, to actually start to do it to, for themselves, they lack a sense of confidence. So when I think of culinary medicine, I think of teaching kitchen confidence. I think of teaching or holding safe spaces for people to reconnect with their kitchen. I think of really of giving people the tools to actually have an experience of cooking something for themselves and feeling proud of it. That's kind of my take on culinary medicine. How does a culinary medicine practitioner help patients identify the key features of food that matter to their palate and will be the building blocks of creating their best diet? So I think the language of food is is really key. And when we are teaching a participant who maybe is a patient, I find it to be paramount. When we're working with somebody who, you know, let's let's just take pain, for instance, because I've worked a lot with the comprehensive pain program. The unspoken language is when the participant shows up, they walk into the room and you can tell that they're presenting with pain. Their shoulders are hunched over. They can't make direct eye contact. They're quiet. They'll find a, a separate place in the room to sit, to kind of detach. And then when we start to cook, because sometimes we just like to dive into the cooking just to kind of get people to start to, to notice what's going on in the room. And we'll start to cook and we'll start to smell because usually the first thing we do is we're, we're smelling the things that we're chopping or sauteing. 
And as soon as the smell happens, you start to see people light up. And this is still the unspoken language of cooking. And you start to see them put their pain down for a moment. And then they start to talk and they start to connect. And then we start to use, you know, the spoken word when we start to talk about the sensory of food. Every class we teach in culinary medicine, we have a sensory experience. And the sensory experience is actually the experience that teaches us the language of food. When we look at food, especially something we've made. So say that we've made a beautiful harvest quinoa bowl. And in that bowl, we have roasted pears and roasted butternut squash. We have some toasted pecans. We have some um, nicely steamed quinoa. Maybe we have some arugula that's been tossed in that. And we have a lovely, you know, uh, maybe a raspberry vinaigrette to bring it all together. So when I think about this bowl and I think about the sensory experience of that, I like to ask everybody while they're looking at it, I say, well, what's first, what do we see? What do we see in that bowl? And I, you know, it's like, I'm not really looking for like, oh, I see butternut squash. No, I, I, I'm looking for like, oh, the quinoa kind of looks like little pebbles or the roasted butternut squash looks like a leaf that I saw that fell on the ground. So I really want us to kind of get a little, little esoteric about it. I want us to just use those eyes to see what we see. And it's funny how all of a sudden, how people start to put different words to explain this food. And when we give them that, we're giving them the power to really experience that food for themselves, not for me as the chef educator telling them how they have to experience it, or the dietitian telling them they have to eat this to feel better, or, you know, it, it doesn't matter. We're giving them the power to experience the food, how they experience it. If you need any help getting esoteric about food descriptions and replacing what you ought to experience with simply noticing what you do experience, then I recommend a review with Rowan Jacobson from the first episode. He of the only describing smells through emotions theory. Leah is not a dietitian. She works closely with dietitians and other health practitioners. That's a partnership in teaching classes, meeting with patients and shared appointments, and preparation like nutritionists providing the list of ingredients to use in recipe development. As a chef, Leah brings the cooking magic to transform our impressions of what a healthy diet means and what's possible. Yes, it's true. When you have a chef walk into a room after a dietitian has kind of, you know, talked about nutrition and talked about the importance of eating healthy, it's funny, as soon as you bring the chef into the room, everybody's like, oh, this is exciting. It kind of brings a little bit of kind of sexiness to the process, if I can say that. And they almost disbelieve that a, a dietitian and a chef can actually cohabitate. I think a lot of people, they think of healthy food. And the first thing they will tell me is that, oh, healthy food, it's bland, or it's boring, or it's too expensive, or I can't access it, or it takes too much time. Pause for a point-break movie reference. Don't I take the skin off chicken? Good man. If you believe nutrition advice is inherently joyless, something only useful as a script device to establish Keanu Reeves as an overly serious FBI agent in a film about bank-robbing skydiver surfers led by Patrick Swayze, then it might be time for a reevaluation. If I do a cooking class and we start cooking and we're tasting and we're enjoying and we're having this great conversation between the dietitian and the chef and the participant, and they start to taste the food that they're cooking 
and they eat it and they're like, oh my God, this is so delicious. And then I love being able to say, and guess what? It's also healthy. When we perceive food as healthy, we usually downplay it. But when we perceive food as delicious, then we're just like, oh, this is amazing. I love this. I can totally do this. But then dot, 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 it's also healthy for you. So it's really how we look at it. Also, the banter that the chef, educator, and the dietitian have is actually quite fun because, you know, one is bringing science and the other is bringing the power of yum. And when you bring those two together, really magic happens. So we have the practice of observing the different sensations of a food within the context of being open to enjoying lots of different kinds of foods, including healthy ones. Let's look a bit more at that process of observing sensations and translating that into a dish on our dinner table. Dale knows more than probably anyone about ice cream inclusions and their texture. What about home cooking? Because when I go home, I really want to make meals, you know, and, and they're not sweet meals, they're savory meals. Like a polenta, which I love polenta. This polenta that I make is a very traditional soft polenta, like a porridge type polenta. So I'm using a very specific size granulation of corn because I want it a heavier texture. I almost want to be able to bite the granulation up when it's cooked versus using a finer granulation of corn, which will give you a very different eating experience. It'll be more like tasty and less granulation. And then you know, depending, I may make crispy mushroom. I may pan fry some mushrooms, pan fry them so that all the water comes out of them and they become very almost crispy. I put a demi-glass onto the polenta and then I add these kind of crispy mushrooms. And then I have this experience of the soft polenta with the silky sauce of a demi-glass and then a little bit of chew and a little bit of crisp of a mushroom. A bit of parsley might be nice. Add some bitter green flavor. Anyhow, that's Dale describing how a bowl of polenta comes together. We heard Leah talking through the layers of a salad bowl earlier. What do we see in that bowl? The quinoa kind of looks like little pebbles, or the roasted butternut squash looks like a leaf that I saw that fell on the ground. Now here's Dale again, leaping from his polenta to a s'mores ice cream project. So I developed this product. It's a s'mores dough piece that goes into ice cream. It's a cocoa-based dough, and I flavor that with a marshmallow flavor. And then I add into there graham cracker crumbs, and then I add also a marshmallow, encapsulated marshmallow flake. So when you eat this, the experience is that you're eating a s'mores because you have that chocolate sensation, that flavor. And then you get the crunch of the marshmallow flake, so it gives you some texture. And then you taste the graham cracker crumbs, which aren't crispy, but they're more of a soft texture to them. So you have all these like different sensations of flavor and textures happening all at one time in one bite. Do you hear the similarities? They're starting with an element of the dish and getting intentionally curious about it. The textures, the aromas, the visuals. Then adding other elements on to create contrasts and complements. Marshmallow flakes next to soft graham crumbles until they arrive at a final creation. It's like one big sundae bar, or one big salad bar, variations on the same theme. In these experiments, home cooks have some advantages food businesses don't have. We can, and should, modify to our own taste 
And we're completely at liberty to have those tastes change. We know that bad things happen when, say, Coca-Cola revises their classic formula. But you and I are not locked into one place. Here's Leah talking specifically about patients experiencing an altered sense of smell or taste. When I've discussed this with people, I find that everybody has their own um, example, which is, of course, classic, because I think when it comes to food, we always, it's very individual. I think the rule of thumb that I have come across is that, yes, you might not like this food now. So let's look at the flip of that. So maybe there are some foods that you might like now that you didn't like earlier. And I have found that to work fairly well, that a lot of people said, oh, you know, I really didn't like, like, say, I don't know, I'll, I'll use mushrooms, because I remember this one woman telling me, I just, I, I hated mushrooms, but I showed her how to saute some mushrooms up, and she could tolerate some butter and herbs, she liked those things. And so we sauteed those up together, and she ate them, and she enjoyed those, even though before cancer, she couldn't stand them. So kind of giving people the idea to say, hey, maybe I need to broaden how I look at food. Maybe I need to experience different types of food and kind of allow them to do that. One practical limitation here is that experimentation requires a level of flexibility in a food budget, both to afford a range of ingredients and to make mistakes on dishes that don't come out in the end. In the examples we're hearing from Leah, Cooking classes and food demonstrations give participants a way to taste and practice in somebody else's kitchen. This flexibility in trying new ingredients is also why some produce prescriptions cover slightly more than the average shopper might spend on ingredients. It supports trying new items. Some programs provide extra food over a relatively short duration at the very start of needing to modify your diet, for example, after a medical diagnosis. Again, this facilitates that experimentation phase usually complemented by nutritional counseling in classes. For more information on health practices supporting basic food access, I recommend our Season 3 episodes, which discuss that goal. Here, I want to emphasize that for many patients who have a specific need for dietary change, it's not just basic access. It's skills, it's guided exploration, it's flexibility to try new things. I think one of the biggest mistakes we make when it comes to giving culinary or nutrition advice is that we think the act of cooking is easy. I see myself doing it where I'll be teaching a class. I was like, well, just chop it this way. It's so easy. If there's one thing I can teach, it would be to remind ourselves that cooking is a burden. It's hard. It's not a cute little Facebook meme of little onions jumping into a pot and magically turning into something delicious. It, it's just, it's not as easy as we say it is. When I think about the first year med students, they're very open to everything. Sometimes I find it a little more difficult to kind of spread the magic of culinary medicine to somebody who might already have a lot of, of ideas and beliefs about what role nutrition plays. So it's a little different. I have to kind of, we have to kind of do a little unlearning because most people will just say, oh, if they just ate right, or if they had better access, or if they had this, they don't really put themselves in their shoes and realize that it's not because they're not here because they didn't know how to cook well. They're here because of so many other reasons, and we need to give them the tools to help them, and we need to meet them where they are. So it's, it's teaching the practitioner and clinician to meet 
the patients where they are to be supportive, to give them the resources that they need, and to get them to cooking classes in a culinary medicine program to then really start to open up this world. It's not for everybody, but it, it, it is a great tool. And I think if we incorporated it more and we had more access to it, I think we would be seeing significant changes in how people eat. It's a little like how flavor works. There's a lot of nuance and details, but we pick out a few things that matter most for us and move forward from there. We don't say that the experience of food is reduced to only the basics of sweet, salty, sour, bitter, and savory. We also don't wait on learning to identify a hundred wine aromas before appreciating our food. There's a vast middle ground. Similarly, integrating food and diet change into healthcare isn't only about making healthy ingredients available, nor is it solving every flaw in the agricultural system while acquiring the skills of a master chef overnight. We'll look more at the process of teaching a new generation of food-savvy health practitioners on the next episode of the Policy in Plainer English podcast. And we've just made our own sound effects. This season of Policy in Plainer English is supported by a grant from HRSA and the Northern Border Regional Commission. Find out more in our show notes at plainerenglish.org.